In this episode, I am once again joined by Professor Arthur Bischluss, Professor and Department Chair of Religious Studies in the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, and author of over 25 books on subjects ranging from Western esotericism, magic, Christian theosophy, ancient mystery schools, and more. In this episode, we discuss Arthur's 2015 book, American Gurus and trace the uniquely American cultural and philosophical factors that led to the prevalence of independent spiritual teachers such as Adi Da, Andrew Cohen, and Ken Wilber. Arthur argues that a philosophy he calls immediatism is the key cultural force and traces its origins from Plato to Emerson to the 60s counterculture and beyond. Arthur recounts personal meetings with figures such as Stephen Gaskins, Bill Ayers, and Bernadette Roberts, as well as reflecting on his own affiliation with Tibetan Buddhism as both a practitioner and teacher. Arthur also shares his take on the psychedelic movement, the revolutionary politics of counterculture figures, and the key ingredients of the modern American guru. So without further ado, Professor Arthur Verschluss. Professor Arthur Verschluss, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Well, I'm very delighted to be having a second conversation with you. Our first one, some episode to go, proved very popular indeed, discussing Christian theosophy uh, and your book, latest book, Conversations in Apocalyptic Times. At this time, I'd like to focus on discussing your book, American Gurus, American Gurus, published by Oxford University Press, From Transcendentalism to New Age Religion. This was published in 2014, and I understand you're currently uh, in the research stages for its sequel. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, it's a continuation of the themes in that, in that book, and also introducing some new uh, some new ones, and it's quite exciting. It's uh, a lot of what is going to be in the new book has not ever been written about, or there's only one article uh, that that was published in such and such a year. So there's very little on on uh, some of the things that I'm writing about in this in this coming book, which will come out in 2023. I'm very fascinated in the six years that have elapsed since you published American Gurus, I'm very fascinated in the uh, developments that you've uh, charted or observed. Maybe we'll hint at some of them towards the end. But anyway, in American Gurus, you uh, trace a movement or a way of thinking you describe as immediatism. And you show how immediatism comes as a sort of blend of Platonism, Romanticism, uh, Transcendentalism, and emerges as sort of uniquely American uh, cultural uh, philosophy, in a sense. And you trace that uh, very specifically through the 60s into the emergence of what you call the American gurus, uh, figures such as Adi Dan, Andrew Cohen, uh, even figures like Ken Wilber and so on. Um, so I'm wondering, could you lay out your uh, description of an argument for immediatism? And can you trace its history a little bit uh, in American thought and culture uh, from those early sources to what we're seeing in the present day? Sure. Uh, when when you look at the arc of American of American uh, history and culture, uh, really, you know, and Harold Bloom is someone who uh, suggested this some he argued this some, you know, some time ago, and I think it's quite true that uh, you have a 
origin point with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson, Bloom says, is a really important figure. And arguably, there's you could even say that there's before and after Emerson um, in terms of American culture. And I think that's true. Of course, Emerson was part of a movement of friends of his, um, which they really were, like uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, a whole, a whole uh, group of them ultimately, although originally it was really uh, just, you know, just a few. Bronson Alcott, uh, who was a remarkable figure that I discuss in the book also, um, uh, those three together were, were uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Bronson Alcott were all close. They all lived together near Boston. They all uh, they they all shared a real um, fascination with Asian religions, and uh, Emerson writes at in his very early work about the importance of uh, the possibility of us as human beings, as he says, uh, as he puts it, uh, leaping into the throne at once. Uh, at once, leaping into the throne, meaning meaning that spiritual knowledge is immediately accessible uh, to us if we are open to it, essentially. And that's really actually the origin of the name transcendentalism, which is a kind of cumbersome term that they didn't choose for themselves. Uh, it was applied to them. And really what they shared was this um immediate spirituality in nature and that's that's true especially of uh, emerson and thoreau alcott was a little bit different um not a lot uh and some argued that actually alcott was functioned more or less as emerson's uh guru figure as his guide and i think there's also truth to that alcott was a uh, the most remarkable figure, uh, given his obscurity, because he he today is is largely forgotten. But he, like Emerson and like Thoreau, really did have and chronicle uh, spiritual experiences. Um, Emerson wrote about an or an experience he had on an ordinary day. It was a cloudy day. He was out for a walk, and on that day, he had this sudden uh, experience, intuition. Experience isn't really the right word either. It's it's this awareness that he had, which he which he describes. And one of my uh, colleagues, a German colleague named Herwig Friedel, uh, he he argued that uh, we actually know more about Emerson's mystical experience than we do about Meister Eckhart, the greatest mystic in the German tradition, which is kind of funny, but it is true um, in that uh, Emerson was quite open about uh, personal experience, whereas Eckhart was much more, uh, he wasn't so much personal. He didn't personalize it. It was simply his sermons. So that's the origin point, I would say, 
for the tradition that I'm talking about in the book, writing about in the book. Yeah, I'm very curious also uh, on the aspects of Platonism and Romanticism that if you could touch on those. And also this, uh, I think, a key to the argument you make in the book is the Protestant principle, as you call it, uh, of the individual over the corporate. Uh, these these sorts of themes that that, that uh, flow in there. But I have another question before that one, which is one of the uh, commonalities with a lot of the figures you describe, right from Ralph Waldo Emerson all the way up to Eckhart Tolle, is a willingness or an openness to write about their personal mystical or spiritual experiences, a sense of inspiration or significance. They evidently consider them something to worth writing about um, and, and worth um, orienting around. And I'm wondering if you've thought about where that sense of the, I suppose, elevation of that subjective individual mystical experience comes from. Um, it's not something that's shared by all the mystics. Uh, of that we're aware of throughout the history of the world. And in, in fact, there seems to also be a sort of count, a counter uh, culture uh, that uh, of a sort of modesty or a hiding away of one's mystical experiences or not speaking of them. We see that, I think, in many of the mystical traditions is perhaps even a more mainline view. From where do you think this uh, uh, willingness or fascination with one's own mystical experiences uh, comes from? I think it's something we still see very commonly today. That's true. And if you look back at the uh, history, the American uh, cultural development in the eight, 18th and 19th centuries, uh, politically, it is a decentralized, it's actually a decentralized um, uh, political system where the autonomy of the individual is emphasized and the, the political system, federal, most people today think federal means, means a giant federal government because that's how the term, but, but actually federalism doesn't mean that at all. It's the exact opposite of that. The American system is federal in the sense it's federated, meaning that power is devolved to uh, originally, and this is the Bill of Rights, the individual. So all rights are held by individuals unless they're enumerated and uh, here, here and enumerated. And so that's, so that's uh, a very different ethos, you could say. And so that, that is part of something that Jacob Needleman refers to as, as uh, the American, you know, the American spirit, you could say, which is, uh, it tends to be individualized. And I think that's, that's a really uh, enduring principle. And it's true even today, although it's increasingly, I think, both forgotten and a kind of uh, becoming almost a minority opinion, uh, but there really is something uh, fundamentally American, uh, in my opinion. Uh, there, there really is a kind of American spirit. And part of what the book uh, uh, elucidates is one strand of that. Uh, some of my work is more politically, uh, looking more at uh, political work or political thinking. Uh, 
Um, but here, when you're looking at religion, as Harold Bloom said, Harold Bloom actually argued there's an American religion, as it were. And I think that's true as well in this kind of uh, meta sense that I'm talking about, this kind of meta level. And the figures that I alluded to early on um, in the book share some things with later figures. And you can, you can really clearly see that. And sometimes the later figures don't acknowledge and even reject the earlier ones. But still, you look at it objectively and you say, well, too bad, because it's actually, there's a continuity there. I'm thinking here of Bernadette Roberts. Um, Bernadette Roberts is a contemporary writer. I know her. She lives in California. Um, and she... Uh, had a series of experiences which she referred to as no self that are that uh, and she was actually connected to um uh, a buddhist a buddhist group she had some some connection with them at least uh, spoke with them um and was you know and refers to refers to them um in some of her books but she very much is in this in this what i'm calling meta tradition and she she comes a bit more out of a you could say a corporate or collective spirit but she's very individual she's very in, in her experiences are the chronicle of of her experiences of no self and i think this is very unusual when you look at the history of mysticism and you read bernadette roberts um, or to speak with her, um, it's very, very different uh, in presentation. But when you look at what she's actually saying, uh, it's very much in continuity, both with figures like, like Eckhart, uh, Meister Eckhart, and Jakob Burma, um, even though she's not interested in those people at all. And, you know, I can say that straight up. She, she's not interested in Christian theosophy, um, particularly, and doesn't really acknowledge a lot of connection to it because she's very much focused on chronicling her own experience, which is, um, she is very, um, cert she's very certain about that. And so, uh, about those and, you know, she very much fits in what we're talking about, right? This this kind of American spirit, you could say. Yes, I think you're right. And there, there, there's an odd tension there. I wonder what you think of this. There can, there can be an anti-intellectualism or a refusal to acknowledge influences or that what one has done is in any way reminiscent of what has been done before um, because originality equates to authenticity uh, or veracity, uh, it seems. There's, there seems to be a need to be original. Uh, I didn't get, I'm not influenced by something from the past. Uh, I wouldn't want to make it seem that my experience was somehow scripted uh, by, the, by the lineage of mystics. Uh, what I'm having is new and unrelated, and I refuse to even look in that direction, uh, lest I sort of muddy my sometimes, uh, what is it, then contradictorily presented as a kind of universal truth applicable to all all men. It's this interesting mix of uh, a certainty of the uh, universal application of one's original insight 
which has never been seen before. And we see that uh, in nascent form, perhaps in the sorts of attitudes of uh, that you're describing there with figures such as Bernadette Roberts, perhaps, but also taken to its extreme uh, in figures such as Adida. Yeah, that's true. You know, uh, Adida, Franklin Jones, um, his his original name, Da Free John, um, he, he had, um, he made claims that were really um, enormous claims. And uh, he positioned himself to some extent in relation to transcendentalism. I mean, not, not, um, you know, obviously as a transcendentalist, but simply kind of gesturing in that direction. Um, but the claims that he made were really quite uh, exceptional. Uh, Bernadette Roberts, you know, in her case, she, you know, she is, you're right, um, uh, pushing aside, or, you know, earlier, she, you know, she had, was not interested in uh, Christian theosophy or, you know, Eckhart or any precedent. And that's very different than uh, what you see in uh, Buddhist traditions where in, in Buddhism, um, and here I'm primarily referring to Tibetan Buddhism, um, although it's true also in Zen. I've had some training in Zen. My main training is in Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, it's all about uh, being part of that continuity. And not rejecting, you know, uh, it would be um, quite alien, essentially, to that tradition to be asserting your own, um, you know, your own unique enlightenment and completely rejecting previous or ignoring or, you know, said, I mean, it, it, the dynamic is just very, very different. And I allude to that at the end of the book. Uh, and at the end of American Gurus, that that a lot of what I'm writing about in the book is American phenomena. I mean, it's it is distinctively American, I would argue. At the same time, when you look at it from the point of view of uh, Tibetan Buddhism and particularly a tradition like Mahamudra where there's a very clear sequence uh, and you, you, the sequence of um, uh, stages, there are different stages and there's, there's explanations for how you move through the path. Uh, that is fundamentally different than what we're talking about. And that I think is an important distinction to make. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting, a lot of the, the phenomena that we're talking about and inter interspersed in the middle, you could say, of this kind of tra trajectory from transcendentalism through to contemporary figures, which include a whole array of different figures. You do have something that we haven't mentioned, which I think is important to at least allude to, and that's the psychedelic, the psychoactive uh, movement, because 
that is really new and it still fits within this within this um kind of argument we're making in fact it's arguably the uh exemplar of it because if you take a psychoactive substance whether it's uh lsd or psilocybin uh focusing maybe on those two uh, that is a very individualized and secondly it is highly immediate i mean it, it's literally immediate <laughs> or uh at least uh um uh, fairly soon and so uh how does that fit into all of this is, a, is another question right because uh, but it does fit in the sense that uh, it fits with the argument of individualism and immediate access and i think that's an important development that to some extent crosses over a little bit with buddhism um, in that, uh, you have in the American uh, scene, you could say, um, some crossover because of the hippie movement, and then also some people who just completely reject psychedelics. Um, I would say that's the majority. And then others that include it a little bit, um, are a little bit open to it. Um, but there's not many of those folks. Um, and so this is this is all part of a kind of tapestry, which is really um, the tapestry of American religious life when you're looking at themes of mysticism and spiritual awakening. Yes, your writings on the counterculture, in fact, chapter 13 deals specifically with that. Quite interesting indeed. You in the opening of that chapter, you you write. Interpretations of the 1960s have tended to fall into two general camps. One group consists in those who trace perceived social ills back to that period. Like a colleague who, morosely contemplating the failures of academe, said that one couldn't begin to rebuild the humanities and social sciences until the generation forged in that era had retired. Probably he's right, though one shouldn't be too optimistic. <laughs> Another group can, that's a good one. Another group consists in those for whom the 1960s represent the birth of a still incompleted social revolution. And for them, the era is comprehensible chiefly through Marxist interpretive lenses. The former is a pessimistic narrative of social decline and fragmentation. The latter is an optimistic narrative of partially thwarted social progress that nonetheless could be completed one day in the future. What I offer here is a very different interpretation of that era, and in particular of the emergence of what came to be known as the counterculture. And then you go on to begin your line of thinking by uh, defining modernity and looking, looking at that in more detail. Could you comment a little on your view of the counterculture and how it plays into this tapestry? Sure. Some years ago, a colleague of mine, Morgan Shipley, and I went down to Tennessee and we went down to the farm. The farm was one of many um, collectives that uh, developed in the 70s, largely in the 70s, some in the late 60s, but 
but more in the early 70s, I think. And uh, uh, so we visited and we visited Stephen Gaskin. And Stephen Gaskin, uh, we interviewed him and, and published the interview uh, in a journal called Journal for the Study of Radicalism. And uh, Stephen Gaskin was a, a charismatic figure who out in California uh, gathered a following, quite a large following, giving these kind of extemporaneous uh, speeches about extemporaneous talks. And they drew together a number of the themes. I mean, he was perfectly well aware of, he, he taught at a college level and he was uh, aware certainly of the transcendentalists and uh, a number of the things, figures that I, uh, and ideas that I discuss in this book. And he exemplified them. And he said that, uh, and he, I think he said this, he, well, I know he said this in the interview, uh, that what he does is look at religions and literature more or less like the, uh, looking at those punch cards that were used for computers during that period. And you can see there are these holes where the light comes through. And it comes through through all the cards, right? That's what he focused on. That was his metaphor, one of his metaphors for that. And so he is an, kind of an exemplar, actually, of uh, immediatism. Um, he's very, he was very charming. Uh, he died a few years ago, and uh, he's, he's a, he was a very charming fellow and uh, very, very humble and uh, very kind. He is perhaps unique, certainly unusual among... Um, charismatic figures in that he was a spiritual teacher. Uh, he was head of this community. He brought this extraordinary community of together by going around the United States with all of these buses on this bus tour of the United States. I mean, the kind of thing, you know, in the 1960s and 70s that this was one of the more uh, remarkable events. Um, traveling around the United States, all of these hippies and buses, you know, occasionally stopping and then Gaskin would do some, you know, extemporaneous, you know, teaching. And they finally end up in Tennessee. They create this community there, this kind of uh, farm community. And then Gaskin, uh, ultimately, uh, people say, well, you're too, you're too, um, you know, it's too um, kind of guru centric. And so there was kind of a, um, you could say, rebellion or a kind of rebellion. Against. And so he stepped down and, and he and his wife went to live in, uh, you know, in a different place on the same grounds. And he stayed there um, and it was still part of the community still, you know, and and so uh, that's an unusual phenomenon within the guru. Uh, you know, it's usually in the kind of guru chronicles, you could say. Um, there are other examples, but they're not quite a, they're not quite like that. And so we met him on the farm. Uh, we sat and talked. He was wearing this tie-dyed t-shirt, you know, and, uh, um, you know, uh, he also included psychedelics early on and then rejected LSD later. So the group rejected it largely, largely at least. 
Um, they never rejected cannabis. Uh, cannabis, he included kind of in his daily, you could say, um, life and, um, you know, the group as well, um, as I understand it. And so uh, he exemplifies the counterculture to me. Uh, and so I write about him, but I think he's instructive as a case study in what I'm calling counterculture, because he was a spiritual teacher of immediatism. No question about that. So that's what I was referring to. You mentioned also a sense of um, political, uh, political implications, or at least societal uh, overhaul implications. I suppose that's political, almost by definition in a way. You know, I was recently rereading Imitation of Christ, Thomas A. Kempis, uh, 14th century to 15th century Christian writer. And um, some of what struck me about that text, some, some of it, even just reading through the table of contents, the chapter headings or the section headings really, is so many similarities to say the 37 practices of the Bodhisattva, for example. In fact, with a few linguistic tweaks, um, you could easily credit imitation of Christ, parts of it, large parts of it, to a so similar author of, of a text, Tokme Zampo, Shantideva, or something like that, could, I think could easily be credited, uh, and vice versa. One thing that doesn't seem to be present in imitations of Christ, for example, or 37 practices of the Bodhisattva, is the implication of social revolution, social change. In fact, there's a theme of rejecting at least in terms of what, where one takes refuge or where one places one's faith or where one places one's stores one's treasure, you pick your analogy. There's a theme of rejecting the, if you want, worldly affairs or the happiness of samsara. And now I'm, I'm kind of bridging both as I'm saying this. And it kind of uh, taking um, solace or uh, refuge or placing one's treasures in the inner life as the sustaining um, and ultimately more worthwhile place. And it also seems that uh, Emerson doesn't seem to be so socially revolutionary either. Doesn't necessarily immediately leap to sort of political overhaul. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that part. But uh, but by the time we get to the six, you're, so I'm right about that. You're right. Okay. Good. <laughs> by the time we get to the sixties, however, there's quite a strong, as you point out, at least in some cases, political element. Uh, quite a confidence, in fact, in a need to overhaul. Uh, society or remake it. In fact, that seems to be very uh, crucial to many thinkers. Uh, the, one example that comes to mind is your, your reference of Ginsburg, Allen Ginsburg, keen to make San Francisco a kind of, uh, what was it, uh, eclectic Tibet, something like that, he said. I'm wondering about that part, because that I think is a is a interesting um, element. Um, that we also see today a kind of uh, political, uh, there's an assumption of a cer certain political stances that are, seem to be uh, hand in glove with American religious movements, including American Christianity. I think people will know that, but also very strongly American Buddhism and very differently, actually. American Buddhism has a very different political slant than, say, American Christianity does, I think. So I'm wondering, how do you think that came to be? And do you have any comments on, on its implications? Well, what I would say is um, quite a few years ago now, 
Um, a colleague and I uh, invited in, we invited in a, a speaker uh, from the 60s. And that was Bill Ayers. Bill Ayers was a uh, member of the weather movement and the weather underground and very much a force for revolution, for overthrowing the US government. I mean, uh, for really radical social change. And uh, in memoirs that were published later by the group, you know, they, they discuss their, you know, their vision. And uh, so we, we some uh, pulled together some graduate students and uh, interviewed him, did an interview, right? Um, and in, in the interview, one of the questions that came up was, at one point, you said that a good portion of Americans would have to be killed in order to realize the revolution. Um, and it was, it was a significant number. Um, uh, and uh, it was, a, I believe it was a percentage of the population that would have to be killed. And uh, that, uh, and so he, he was very, very experienced at answering questions. Extremely good. And so he answered it without answering it. He deflected it. He was phenomenal. I mean, he was actually interviewed by a, a student reporter and his ability to deflect questions was one of the best, um, I mean, he, he's phenomenal at it. He, he had had a lifetime of deflecting the hard questions. Well, what is the hard question here? I mean, uh, this is going back to that same period. And the hard question here is what did you envision? And this was one of the questions that he was asked. What did you envision the United States would look like? What, what would it look like under this? Right? He couldn't answer it. I mean, it was not an answerable question because the violence, the anger, the, you know, the um, implied violence, the anger, and in some cases, real violence, bombings and so forth, um, and the overthrow um, and the anger was that was dominant. And the thinking about the after, not so dominant, right? And so the reason that I mention this is that that mentality from that conversation, which you see in that conversation with Bill Ayers, um, is that is not very much in sync with what I would call American, you know, what I see in American Buddhism or in Christianity. In other words, I don't see anyone out there who, you know, that I'm aware of who is endorsing this kind of violent overthrow and destruction and anger and so on. And yet there is a continuity, right? There's a direct line between what Bill Ayers and the weather folks were doing 
back in the late 60s, early 70s, when they ultimately were on the run and hunted by the FBI. And then somehow mysteriously, nobody ever went to since <laughs> got any serious time or anything. That's one of the great mysteries of that period. But anyway, let's ignore that and just look at the line. What is the line? Well, the line goes straight from that on the far left, all the way up to the present in the, you know, night 2020, you had all the um, violence and um, uh, riots and uh, social movement. And there's, there's a lineage between the, there's a lineage there, which is uh, continuous uh, on the far left. And the thing that I would say about that, and I would just remark on it that I've, I've kind of scratched my head is that it has a lot, there are a lot of parallels between that and the Bolshevik revolution, or before that, the French revolution, or after that, the Chinese revolution. These things are all connected. And the reason I'm kind of scratching my head, and that's, that's what I was mentioning, is uh, when you, you know, I know that there are many Buddhists who identify with the left in American Buddhism. But I think it's important to recognize that the far left has a history uh, which you can see in terms of Buddhism very clearly in China. Uh, and the Chinese uh, invasion of Tibet, uh, the documentation of that, the photographic documentation that you can look at in, in books like Forbidden Memories, uh, which is a photographic documentation of, of really horrific things that happened in, in Tibet as Buddhism was destroyed under a movement driven by the far left, okay? So it is um, something that I think people need to reflect on. And I realize this is, this is awkward, uh, it is sometimes, you know, in my calling, as I feel it, to say these things. And so American Christianity is not so, um, it is divided. Uh, there are many different groups. Um, I have neighbors who, uh, I know people who support, who are deeply Christian, and because their pastor has become of uh, very, very much enamored with the left, then, then that, then their, their, their uh, group becomes left, uh, you know, the community to some extent within that church. Uh, then there are very, very conservative uh, Christians who thoroughly reject, um, you know, or the word may not be conservative, I think, uh, there now has been a development, which is um, people who are Christian and nationalist and reject um, what they call rhinos, Republicans in name only, and even reject the term conservative. Uh, that's why I tend to use the terms right and left. Um, I realize some people hate those terms. They come from the French Revolution. And since we're talk, what we're talking about directly comes from the French Revolution, uh, I think 
they're, they're probably the most appropriate terms. I think we could have a political structure that had nothing to do with those terms, um, but that would be a different conversation. We're talking about what's happening now and kind of this, this broader lineage. So I think those are the things I would say, um, you know, about American Buddhism and American Christianity. That's very interesting. You make a point in the early parts of the book about primary and secondary religions. Um, the key differentiation being that secondary religions are uh, reactive or position themselves or define themselves in opposition to. Uh, they're defined by what they're not as much as, as what they are. I was reflecting on this point as I was reading your book, and I was wondering where this tremendous confidence comes from in these figures, particularly these spiritual countercultural figures in the 60s, in their um, uh, tremendous zeal to overturn or, or, or incite revolution or, or deconstruction of some sort. Another thing you point out is the uh, absorbing of wisdom traditions, not only Western wisdom traditions, but also uh, Eastern uh, Asian Western traditions, and a kind of recasting some of the terms, such as no self, such as emptiness and so on, recasting it with this tremendous confidence reinventing or repopulating of a view it's a i'm just i'm just staggered in a sense where the confidence comes from <laughs> <laughs> well you know there are a few examples that i that i give in the in the book american gurus about you know of um people who had gone to india for you know a couple of weeks maybe um met a guru you know and came back and I'm a guru. And, you know, really you, you, you have to, you, it is something um, remarkable uh, because um, how do how do you really claim that? Um, it doesn't always produce great results, I don't think, when you're looking at the, you know, the kind of the the traject the total trajectory. Um, uh, in the case of somebody like Stephen Gaskin, he was essentially um, um, very much like in the Emersonian tradition, in that he. You know, he he was confident in the way Emerson was confident. You know, Emerson writes these consecutive sentences that are just very, uh, very certain and um, and in a certain sense also very pure. Um, you know, in terms of advice, in terms of how to live. Uh, where does this come from? I don't know. It's a comes out of his direct uh, intuition, really. I mean, he just opened up and wrote. Um, Gaskin did the same thing. He would he would gather together his you know five hundred hippies and they would they would and he would discourse and go back and forth with people, and it was it was really quite you know it was quite extraordinary when you look at it. Um, at the same time, you're I think you're right about psychedelics. Um, playing a role in in some of the things we're talking about, you know, Gaskin certainly, um, others as well, but it doesn't play a role. 
I don't think at all in a number of the guru figures. There, it's somebody has either an experience or a set of experiences or um, makes claims, how, whatever the case may be. And it starts to take on a um, inertial force. It, they start to pull people in. And dynamics of guru disciples start to play out. And there, once, once somebody is established in that kind of dynamic, then it becomes kind of hard to get out of it. And, and the ball starts rolling down the hill and it just keeps gathering speed, you know, but sometimes it just crashes and, you know, I mean, it shatters because, um, uh, circumstances reveal different things or who knows what, uh, somebody gets carried away. Um, so, you know, that history, um, has a lot to do often, I think, with particular kinds of social dynamics. Also, there are phenomena. I mean, uh, Adida, um, during the period when he was, I think it was when he was Da Frijan, um, there was this period, and I describe it in the book, where there's all this kind of, uh, it's, it's phenomena similar to the descent of the Holy Spirit in... Um, Pentecostal uh, communities. He had that kind of phenomena around him. There's something going on. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's something going on there. I mean, I, there's a whole body of people that all had these experiences. Um, and they said they had the experiences and they all remembered it for the rest of their lives. And so something is really going on there. And so, you know, I don't cast a judgment on that in the book. Uh, I don't say, you know, this is this or this is that, and I don't denigrate uh, different teachers um, or guru figures, but I do describe in a in a as objective a way I as I can from sources um, and documentation what you know what happened, and so the confidence to answer your question in some cases comes from experience but here's the thing experience can be deceptive this is why in buddhism it's so important in that tradition to have teachers to have guides and um sometimes you have guides some of the, some of these did uh some of the guru figures did but many of them did not right they had they just kind of um spontaneously combusted, you could say. So that I think is an important distinction to make. So those are a few remarks kind of extemporaneously about this. Eric Hoffer's book, The True Believer, uh, which I expect you're familiar with, there's a fabulous line in there, something along the lines of the efficacy of a doctrine is not in its accuracy, but in its certitude. Meaning, of course, that doesn't necessarily have to be true to be potent as a doctrinal force. And, you know, you're, you're picking up on this point in social dynamics. And in Ojai, my colleague, Michaela, she rescues dogs, right? And uh, there's a dog pack of, I think, currently six rescue dogs. And they organize themselves really rather spontaneously into a hierarchy with an alpha dog. 
and the and uh, I've witnessed several of the alpha dogs over the years you know, dying, and then the next one sort of moves up, or or the bottom dog, uh, new dog comes in, and the bottom dog's now number you know number two from the bottom, and the change in orientation and uh, bearing and personality in some sense is, is remarkable to watch. There's no, no reason really why five should follow one. Fundamentally, the five should follow the alpha. There's no particular size differential. In fact, the current alpha dog is, I think, one of the smallest of all of them. It's just been there longer. It's, it comes down to that. And it seems a crucial element to the guru. Yes, there's one's personal experience. I've had an experience of enlightenment. Of course, if one's experience of enlightenment points to the, the uh, shatters the illusion of one's previous view, uh, it seems somewhat incomplete to then take on the new enlightened view with as much t tenacity and certainty as one held the previously shattered view. It seems a little short-sighted, but nonetheless, there it is. I've had the experience, and so now I, I know. But it's a crucial step in the Chronicle of the Guru, as you say, seems to be the devotees. There has to be a pressure from the outside coming back into the Guru saying, you've got it. Uh, this is it. This collaboration, it seems, between the guru disciple. Now, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think maybe speculating here a lot, of course. That I'm asking you. I'm just framing it in this way. That I think is particularly interesting. You mentioned Arida with the epiphenomena, his, his charismatic powers, uh, something f f uh, shared by his direct influences. R Rudy, for example, Albert Rudolph, the New York uh, antique dealer and uh, spiritual teacher. Uh, Rudy also had that power that was seen as evidence. So it's yes, I had the experience, but also I'm able to perform or generate this field of spiritual experience. In fact, you even mentioned Andrew Cohen was one of the that seemed to be one of the turning points for him when some of the ladies in his circle began to have spontaneous experiences. And that was seen as evidence of his um. enlightenment. And so do you have any comment about that? I'm curious, where do you think this charisma comes from? And I mean that in the sense of charisma, in the sense of the gift, the gifts, the gifts of the spirit in that sense. We see it in the Pentecostal traditions and we see it indeed in, in these new gurus. And we see it, I think, also in meetings in traditional religious contexts. Uh, I, one hears many American converts say, to, to, to use your example, Tibetan Buddhism, a sort of love at first sight. They go looking for a guru, they meet this Lama, they meet that, but then they met this one and they knew, they had tingles, they had shocks. There's some sort of uh, experience. Uh, th these are, of course, similar um, phenomena that one might experience in the presence of a, a movie star or a rock star. So I don't know if they're the same, if there's a status element at play, or if there's some other uh, means. Group hypnosis, of course, has been, or indeed raw spiritual power, or maybe even the the, the the raw feeling of the certainty of the frame of the guru. Who knows? Have you speculated about where do these phenomena come from? And it seems that no strata of society is, is safe. From the most educated to the least educated can be affected and converted by this kind of road to Damascus experience. So I'm curious, what have you thought about that? <laughs> well, in the book, I, you know, I just outline the history of different figures uh, based on documentation and in some cases conversations primarily you know everything in the book is in some way documented and so that uh, and in that way um, 
I don't speculate, you know, in the context of the book about uh, interpretations. In other words, I give, I give, you know, a history of or examples of uh, some of these phenomena that you're, you know, that we're talking about. Um, but I don't move to the level of hypothesizing and as to, um, you know, cause effect or origin or anything else. Uh, I also don't in the book, um, I focus primarily really on figures, American figures, either historical or contemporary, who've had these uh, experiences of transcendent experiences or made claims for that. And those largely those experiences are immediate. They're, they're immediate tists. That's the term that I uh, coined for them. Um, but what I don't do is uh, discuss then uh, in the book, the history of American Buddhism, for example, or the history of Hinduism, for that matter, or other, other traditional, really what I'm looking at are independent figures, uh, largely, whether it's psychedelics, somebody takes psychedelics. I mean, there are actually contemporary figures that are almost like evangelists of, of, of psychedelics. Um, I don't look at, uh, for example, in the book, uh, Chagyang Trungpa, um, because he doesn't exemplify this phenomena that I'm discussing. Uh, and if I did, dis if I were to, to discuss him, it would still be, it would have been in the same, in the same way. In other words, I would have looked at him and his, uh, there were some extraordinary things that some of his students have um, reported. And I have no reason to doubt those things actually. You know, I have no reason to doubt it whatsoever. Um, so how do you interpret a figure so, so influential, so extraordinary? I mean, his cultural impact was remarkable. Was, there's just no question about that. I, you know, you look at Shambhala, the book, book publisher. You look at uh, Naropa in, in uh, Colorado, uh, you know, Buddhist College. You look at, you know, these figures like Allen Ginsberg and, Many others that were all, you know, um, you know, part of or related to his impact. Um, so, what would I say about a figure like that? I mean, he's controversial in, you know, in some, in some respects. Um, I can't, you know, I pass no judgment and and make no effort to, you know, I'm not willing to speculate about origin of of particular phenomena or what's going on here or those kinds of things. Um, but I would say all of these, all of these figures are culturally important, whether they are, you know, um, positive or negative examples. I leave that for other, other people to, you know, make that assessment. But what I would say is, um, 
there is clearly a broad cultural impact that all of these different American guru figures have had when you look at them collectively. And that includes Ken Wilber, that includes, um, you know, for that matter, Adi Dow or, or um, you know, Gaskin or, you know, so they all have this, this impact. I think uh, one of the things that's developing now that's, that's quite important and that relates to this uh, is centered in the figure of Alan Wallace. Uh, Alan Wallace is um, uh, a Lama, Tibetan Lama, who has put a lot of energy into the study of what he calls contemplative science and uh, developing in concert with scientists a kind of shared, developed understanding of the nature of the mind and the nature of uh, meditative experience and, and developing what he calls contemplative observatories. Um, I think all of that and that effort which he's making uh, and others with him, I think that's vitally important. We're only at the beginning of that kind of effort. And I think it, it really will shed light on ultimately on the questions that you're referring to. So I, I would point toward uh, that as something I think that's really important. And that ultimately is gonna have a lot, shed a, lot, a light on a lot of larger social phenomena like what we're talking about. Does, does that make sense? You, do you see where I'm going with yes. this? Yes, and you're, you're right. Uh, you don't speculate in the book at all. It's not that sort of a book. You're, tra you're tracing the uh, uh, thread of immediatism as you see it from Emerson and, and prior all the way back to Plato. You, you actually draw some, some links. But nonetheless, uh, you're showing how that progresses through the um, 20th century and into today. That's true. So, of course, when I ask you to speculate, I'm asking you ex cathedra, you know, outside of outside of the remits of the book. I understand that's the case. And indeed, as a uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, practitioner and indeed teacher of that religion, that's another hat that you wear, if you like, another role that you have with the Samya Institute and so on. I wonder if in that context you have reckoned with those questions. Well, in my in my own case, um, you know, I I do what's helpful within the context of uh, Samye, which is um, a um, community uh, of uh, Pakshak Rinpoche, and so um, I can't say that in in that context, it's something that. You know, the, this collection of, of things that we're talking about uh, is something that comes up very often uh, because it's, it's really a tradition focused on um, Mahamudra and Dzogchen and specifically movement through that tradition. And... Um, uh, through that tradition, which is a sequential tradition. And so, uh, you know, I would say 
that is what we really focus on. And um, I, I kind of go uh, off in different directions in my scholarship, which is, um, you know, I explore things that I, that I enjoy exploring. And uh, in that case, uh, it's not necessarily directly a reflection of, of um, you know, Tibetan Buddhist practice, although it's related. Obviously, it's related. And I know I had a friend who, who um, uh, I sent a copy. He, we've been, you know, practitioners for quite a few years. I sent him a copy of American Gurus and, uh, you know, as a gift. And, and uh, he, he was scratching his head. He read, he read it, he and his wife. And uh, he, he said, um, you know, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now, and, and just just the questions it raises, um, the kinds of things that it 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 raises, which are outside the purview of of uh, they're kind of outside the pale, uh, almost uh, as a set of questions, uh, and uh, you know, so so I laughed. We actually laughed about that together. You know. Um, at the end of at the end of American Gurus, what I what I suggest is is really what I'm alluding to here, which is, uh, and I was alluding to with a comment about Ellen Wallace, and that is uh, one of the reasons that I became uh, so deep, you know, so deeply connected to the tradition that I am part of is that it provides this sequential understanding. And for me, because I'm not particularly good as a practitioner, it's really helpful to have that kind of guidance and have that kind of sense of here's where you're going and you're not there yet, but you know something like this is gonna happen down the road. That's really important and uh, to me. And so that would be my, you know, my response is that, um, you know, I, I do go off in heretical directions here and there. A lot of my work is literally about heresy. <laughs> it's literally about heresy. And I've studied a lot of heretics. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how it is. I've studied a lot of radicals too. Um, at the same time, uh these are uh, all connected to a center and the center is practice so that's what i would say your own personal practice or yes yeah yeah so that is there in the center and then these these other things are uh you know, uh, areas that I go off to explore. And I, I see it as an adventure, you know, it's, it's adventuring. My <laughs> next book is going to be American Gnosis. And that book is, I will guarantee you, there is a 100% chance when you read that book, there are things in there you will read and you will say, wait, I, 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 I gotta, I gotta go for a walk. <laughs> you know, I gotta, because I, I know some of the chapters that are going to be in there. And 
you'll be, you know, how do you process this? Like what, <laughs> you know, can you give us a hint? <laughs> um, I'll leave it at that because, because uh, there are some things that I've discovered that are just really fun to explore. You know, I just love to explore things. I really do. And, you know, I'm so fortunate to be able to do it and share it with people. And, you know, having this conversation with you is part of that. And I really appreciate it. It's, it's fun. Yeah. And, and you're a, you're an exceptional, um, uh, you know, an exceptionally, um, I would say, uh, thoughtful and, um, perceptive and, you know, eloquent, um, you know, conversationalists. And so I, you know, I really appreciate dialogue is very important to me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to go back and forth with you, Steve. Thank you. The pleasure is mutual. I can assure you it's, it's a, a great privilege, in fact. And uh, okay, well, you've proven yourself today to be not only a heretic, but also a tease. Uh, so we'll have to look forward to American Gnosis. So, all right, well, perhaps we can finish then with this. This is a little bit outside of the purview of the book, but nonetheless, I'll give it a shot. If we were to switch track somewhat to American Buddhism, and, and I think you, I was delighted to see you cited or you referred to Alan Watts' essay, uh, Beat Zen Square Zen, uh, which I think is a very, uh, very good essay. If I could characterize it as saying one of the things it says is too uniquely uh, or, well, not uniquely, two ways in which American culture interacts with Zen and makes it, it's a, a third thing, the beats in the squares. And, you know, to get Freudian again, the thing that's interesting about that book is this idea of, you know, there's this uh, trope in psychology that if you don't, uh, if you don't work out your childhood issues, you'll play them out in your relationships, uh, romantic relationships as an adult, un unknowingly. And that the things we're looking for in our partners sometimes are what we didn't get as children, blah, 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 you know, this sort of trope. Uh, psychological trope, pop psychological trope. Now, Alan Watts, I think, is playing there a little bit. Uh, many of the that interaction with Zen, driven by a kind of um, unresolved home religion dynamic. I think that's fascinating. So Zen, in a way, perhaps because it's earlier, is a is a more obvious example of the American um, Buddhist encounter, uh, producing a kind of American Buddhism, an American Zen, and this has been, I think, uh, widely uh, recognized. But I'm curious, you're, you're a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. In what ways do you see, if at all, the mixture or the meeting of um, the American immediatism and other cultural factors that you, you describe and Tibetan Buddhism, uh, for example? I'm wondering if you notice any trends there or any uh, that you that uh, are indicative of the same sort of thing that Watts points out in B10 Squares End, for example, similar sort of ideas. Or indeed, extending from that, perhaps, is there any possibility, seeing as American culture is, is so um, influential in, on the international stage, is there any possibility of, of that being re-exported back to redefine the tradition, the tradition in its um, uh, home contexts? I think, for instance, of the Burmese Vipassana movement, which uh, has been described by some as a sort of reactionary revitalization, almost reinvention, you could say, of, um, of Buddhist Vipassana practice in the face of colonial influences. That's one of the strands. That's one. I think that's a, not quite right. It's more, much more than that. But nonetheless, perhaps that's a force, a factor. So I'm wondering there, those two things, really. 
in what way you seen specific Tibetan Buddhism and American culture interacting in, in these sorts of ways? And also, if there's any evidence of uh, any kind of, if you want, back influence. Yeah, there's, it's interesting, you know, I was reflecting uh, just for a moment there, um, because uh, very early on, um, uh, you know, I grew interested in Zen and, uh, you know, looked for different Zen teachers and went to, and went to uh, Philip Kaplow, Philip Kaplow Center. And um, I know people who are still connected with it. Um, so I went there, I think once and, um, once or twice, maybe. And, um, Philip Kaplow, of course, had gotten Zen training and then in Japan and, uh, uh, then started a center here. And then among his students, uh, was, was a woman named Tony Packer and she, uh, created a Zen he was Rinzai, you know, drawing largely just on a kind of modified a Soto Rinzai. It's a kind of, um, um, you know, uh, joined lineage to some extent. And, uh, but she really, what she developed uh, was really Zen without, you know, koans, without, it was really without, you know, really without the, you know, any of the Japanese elements, uh, you could say, or that is the kinds of, you know, either language or, you know, uh, uh, wearing the rakasu or the, you know, all of those, all those things, but then also the um, rejecting, basically, even like teaching, you know, to some extent. And um, so that's, you know, that's an example of, you know, the kind of the spontaneous development of a non, almost, you know, what Jeffrey Kripal calls, you know, non-religious, you know, it's, it's like a non-religious religion or an unreligion or something, you know, which is to some extent an American phenomenon. So that's, you know, that does exist. Um, not as much in the Tibetan Buddhist sphere, in my observation. I mean, um, I think Zen has lent itself to some extent, partly by its, its you could some degree call it iconoclastic, you know, history, especially the Rinzai. Um, uh, because of that, it, it lends itself a little bit more to that kind of American you know, Americanization. Tibetan Buddhism, not as much, because Tibetan Buddhism typically, in my experience, comes with a lot of cultural and linguistic and um, uh, religious um, aspects. And I really value those personally. I mean, I actually find that quite important um in fact i'd say essential for me um and so i'm actually studying classical tibetan right now um uh it's one of it's one of the things that i'm i'm engaged in in addition to the other things <laughs> so so 
from my perspective personally to be uh to to draw be able to draw on and understand and um be connected to something that goes so far back and has the force of so much um behind it you could say and embedded in it is really important um so that's you know that's my own experience but when i look more broadly of course there are all kinds of different um things happening in american uh forms of buddhism and so it's really hard to make you know generalizations i can talk about my experience what i've observed um and those are two examples actually um and I'm not sure that they really speak to entirely what you're what you're uh, asking about, but they do give give some indicators. Mm. Perhaps I could put a finer point on it. I'm also, uh, by the way, a student of classical Tibetan, so it's nice to hear that uh, <laughs> you're studying that. It's, it's quite fun, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, um, perhaps I could put a finer point on it that I've been uh, struck that I don't think this is a tremendous revelation that some of the behavior, a lot of the behavior and organization of say American, if we talk specifically about Tibetan Buddhism, okay, aside from the Lama figure to an extent, very similar, uh, including the publishing houses, including the universities, and so on, very similar to the sort of behavior one sees in, uh, let's say mainline Christian, specifically Protestant Christian cultural expression. So I'm always surprised a mental game I sometimes play with myself, on myself, and indeed in observing these things is I, I sometimes switch the religion, just, you know, like uh, switch the lens and look at the Roshi as a Lama or look at the Lama as a, a priest or look at the, the student or devotee of Tibetan Buddhism as a, as a Pentecostal or a Baptist or something like that. And I'm surprised to see that the shoe fits rather well um, on the other foot. So to say, and uh, that's always interesting to me. It's not to say that it's wrong or bad. It's just to say that hu human beings are doing both activities. So there seems to be some similarities. But also, if we talk about America, American human beings are doing with the culture that cultural force both activities. So that's uh, what I'm. And one of the criticisms that one sometimes hears from Asian teachers of American students, and there are indeed many uh, criticisms that that one hears, is that oh, Americans. You just want the high teachings. You want Dzogchen, you know, you think you can go straight to the high teachings and so on. And I think, you know, in, in perhaps in your view of, uh, if we take your argument of immediatism, it's natural, actually, straight, the Protestant immediatism, this whole thread straight to Dzogchen. Of course, of course, that seems to be, you, you describe Arida as the avatar of immediatism. I think Dzogchen, from a Tibetan Buddhist point of view, or Mahamudra, um, can be misinterpreted, perhaps, but can be easily seen uh, as the most compatible of all the yanas with this immediatism. So, um, yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, do you see any immediatism in the American fascination with Dzogchen? Do you see any uh, immediatism uh, at play there? Well, that's something that I haven't really looked at yet. Um it's not in American gurus. It probably will be in, in this next book. Um, you know, there are some really interesting people out there. Um, for example, Keith Dowman, um, you know, is 
as I understand it, teaching a kind of, um, uh, it's Zogchen, which is, um, it doesn't have a lot of the kinds of um, structure around Zogchen, you know, the kind of preparatory, you know, um, uh, practices and other things in the sense of, you know, the nine yanas or the, you know, the preliminary practices, um, nundro, um, the, you know, um, as I understand it, uh, so there are people who, as I, as I gather, do do that to some extent, but I'm not really sure whether that fits with immediatism as such, uh, because there still is, as I understand it, a, uh, a sequence with, within that, uh, and that uh, someone like him is still teaching within that, uh, you know, and certainly, you know, with a basically a lifetime of, of working with teachers um, and living in Nepal, um, you know, this is someone who just kind of went in that direction. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, disconnected from the tradition itself, I guess is what I would say. Um, but I haven't really explored that enough uh, to, you know, speak with any kind of, um, you know, uh, clarity about it because I just haven't done that. I do think you're right that there's um, a tendency, it's an interesting exper experiment you suggest, um, you know, taking a look at, you know, different uh, publishing houses or other, other enterprises uh, and just uh, sort of putting on a different tint on your glasses and seeing how it looks, it's kind of an interesting experiment. I do think that uh, you know, I alluded to Pentecostal kind of phenomena, and such things do do happen. I mean, it, and you could call it Pentecostal phenomena in Christianity or somewhere else. What does that actually mean, right? Like, what what is the significance of that? I mean, I know one scholar who's, who's really a well-known scholar who said, well, uh, one interpretation is, you know, from his family background is it's demonic. And just straight up demonic. And he said, well, you know, there's no intrinsic reason that it might not be demonic, you know? And this is someone, this is, I mean, this, this is someone really who's an object, uh, trying to be an objective scholar, right? And just saying, okay, well, that's a hypothesis. I have to accept it as a possible hypothesis, right? And so there's a lot of ways that you can, you know, different like lenses you can put on and different tints. And you can look at things from different angles. And they all have some validity, I think. Um, you know, and ultimately you come to your more studied conclusions, which draw on all these different sources. And, you know, that's the direction, um, you know, that uh, I'm taking with these different books. And each book explores something new and something that I think is important. So I, I really appreciate the chance to talk about these things with you. Oh, it's been so wonderful. 
really fascinating and thank you for being so generous with your time. Professor Arthur Verschluss, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate it. You know, I, this is an opportunity for me to think about these things too and reflect on them. And as an interlocutor, you're, you're really um, uh, able to encourage that. And I, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.